chapter 11, and I, we're just going to continue our study through the book of Romans. I know it was my New Year's resolution to finish the book of Romans this year, and this is the first time I've taught from it in the whole month of February. So it's just been, uh, uh, that's the way it goes sometimes, amen? But we'll, we'll continue. Now, if you remember, we're in the 11th chapter, and chapters 9, 10, and 11 are a parenthetical portion of the book of Romans that deals specifically with the Jews. Uh, Romans chapter 9 discussed how that God had rejected Israel as a nation. Romans chapter 10 discussed how the majority of individual Jews had been rejected personally because of their personal unbelief. So chapter 9 dealt with Israel as a whole, but chapter 10 deals with the unbelieving Israelite as an individual. Now chapter 11 addresses the remnant, the elect, that portion of Israel which has not rejected Jesus Christ, which has by grace through faith obtained the promise, obtained salvation, the promise that Jesus Christ brought to the whole world. So we're dealing now with that portion of the Jews. The main point of the chapter, chapter 11, is that the rejection of the Jews is not a complete thing. It's not a total thing. It's not a finished thing. God has not categorically set aside the Israelites and, and said they're condemned for all of eternity. God's desire and his intention is still to save as many of the Jews as possible. And that's the main focus of this chapter, not just that there is an elect, that there is a remnant, but that it is impossible, it is available to all Jews to become a part of that elect, to become a part of that remnant. No one is excluded just by the prejudice of God. They are excluded by their own unbelief. They're excluded by their own rejection of the gospel message. But God hasn't put anybody out. Anybody could find salvation. So those Jews who choose to obey and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ can become a part of the New Testament church. They will become a part of the elect, the remnant, that, that portion of the Jews that have found righteousness and salvation in Jesus Christ by virtue of the fact that they'll repent of their sins. They'll be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of those sins, and they will be filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. They will be born again. Amen? So in the context of that discussion, we take up Romans chapter 11 and verse 7. I'm going to cover 7, 8, 9, and 10 this morning, and I'll read that first, and then we'll get into it. It says, Romans chapter 11 and verse 7, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David said, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back alway. Amen. I'll go back to verse 7. What then Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it and the rest we're blinded. There are three necessary components to this passage. First, the nation of Israel, which has sought something but has not 
obtained it. Then the elect which have obtained what the nation was seeking after. And then what it was that they were seeking after. What is the thing that they were seeking after. So the first question we need to answer to, to really get to the root of this text is, uh, what is it that everybody's seeking after? What is it that the Israelites are, are seeking? What is it that the elect has obtained? And the answer comes from the context of the, the whole of the book of Romans. The thing that has been sought throughout the book of Romans is righteousness. The Jews are seeking righteousness or right standing with God. Back in chapter 9, we learned that the Jews were seeking after righteousness fervently, but the majority of them never obtained it, while the Gentiles, who never even had the good common sense to seek after righteousness, they did obtain it by the grace of God because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so now we're dealing not with uh, the Jews versus the Gentiles. Righteousness is still the active subject, but now we're dealing with a contrast between the unbelieving Jews and the remnant of the Jews or the elect that have obtained righteousness and they have obtained it by their faith in Jesus Christ. So to restate the premise that's presented in this verse, the majority of the nation of Israel has sought after righteousness. They've tried to get into right standing with God. They've tried to get into a, a right relationship with God, but they have not obtained it. They didn't get it. While the, the reason why they didn't get it is because of the way they sought it. God gave them a law system that operated by faith. There isn't the blood of a bull or a goat that can wash away your sins, neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament. It took faith. It was the operation of faith in the law system that made that effective for salvation. But they took that which was based on faith and they turned it into a legalistic system by which they would be saved by their own works. It was a system by which they could earn salvation, by which they could make God indebted to them that he would owe them salvation if they, if they faithfully fulfilled the law of God. The law was not the problem. It was the way they executed the law. It was what they did with the law. Amen? There was righteousness, and I know I'm backing up into stuff we've already covered, but there was righteousness to be obtained in the law. There were godly men who were saved. By, they achieved and obtained righteousness from God under the law. The problem wasn't the law. The problem was the way the law was executed, the way it was viewed. The problem was that that, that legalistic system doesn't require any faith. I, if I do this, this, and this, then God owes me salvation. Honey, I'm going to tell you something. You're never going to do anything that's going to put God in your debt. He's never going to owe you anything. It was faith that made it work. If I believe that God is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him and that faith compels me to obey the word of God, it is my faith that makes it effective. And so that was the problem with the law system. That's why they never obtained that which they were seeking after. But there was a minority of the Jews, an election. Uh, uh, that's what the verse calls them, the election or the elect, that they obtained it. 
They, they sought after it and, and they obtained it. Those are those that obeyed the word of God in faith and who have, as an extension of that faithful obedience to God, have accepted Jesus Christ as the Messiah and have obeyed the gospel message of Jesus Christ. We're in the New Testament now. And they, they've obeyed the message that has been preached to them. They've repented of their sins. Amen. They've been baptized in the name of Jesus. They were filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. That elect group has obtained the promise. Israel sought after it, but they didn't find it. They didn't obtain it. But this elect group, they have obtained it. Now, to be clear, the difference between Israel and the elect is not God's predetermination or predestination of who would or would not be saved. The elect are not the elect. They are not saved while the majority is lost because that's simply the way that God willed it to be for a select few, a select number of people. That is not the case at all, although there are churches that preach that. There are religious systems that believe that there are, just, there are some that are just chosen for salvation, that they are the elect, and they're, they have been, they're, they're special because God chose them. That's not what the Scripture means at all when it calls them the elect or, or the remnant. They're, they're not saved because God selected them special out of everybody else. They were marked for salvation and, and everybody else was marked for, for condemnation. Amen? You think I'm extreme, but I can quote Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers of the last century, who said, every man is born with either an L or an S on his forehead. From moment of birth, some are lost and some are saved and they don't have any choice in the matter. That's not truth, friend. That's not Bible. That's not established on the Word of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to whosoever will. To anybody who will hear, believe, and obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? So the majority is not lost because God just shoved them aside. They're not lost because God was predisposed to, to, to discard them. They are lost because of their unbelief. They have so entrenched themselves in the notion of their own righteousness and their own ability to keep the law that they failed to see Jesus Christ, who was the fulfillment of the law. They were so caught up in a me-centered version of the law, self-centered version of the law, that they couldn't even see the fact that Jesus Christ was the lamb uh, that was slain uh, from the foundations of the world. They couldn't see the fact that this is him who comes to take away the sin of the whole world because it was, they were so caught up in their self-centered model of the law. And so having failed to recognize Jesus as the Messiah and having rejected him and having rejected the New Testament plan of salvation that was being preached by the church in the New Testament era, they were discarded or they were lost because of their unbelief. Amen? So the difference between Israel at large and the elect is their faith in Jesus Christ and their obedience to the gospel message of salvation. It's not enough just to say, I believe. Belief always results in obedience. 
And I, I hammer that home very strong because some have misconstrued the designation of the elect to mean that there's a small predetermined group of Jews who were marked for salvation and everybody else was, was going to be lost. That's not the case at all. Those that were lost then are just like those that are lost now, and they're lost because of their unbelief. Now, Paul says that the rest, those that were lost, they were blinded. That's what it says at the end of the verse. The rest were blinded. The usage of the word blinded is an interesting translation. I'm going to explain how they got to that word. But first, let's start with the Greek word that is there. The Greek word that Paul used means to be hardened or made insensitive. It, it can be used in the context of a branch. When you cut a branch off of a tree and, and it's green, it is easily bent. Think of a willow switch. You cut a willow switch. How many of us remember a willow switch? And, and that thing whips real easy. It, it bends. It's real flexible. You can whip it around because it is flexible. Amen. But if you leave that branch sitting out for a day or two after you cut it off, a transformation takes place. And it begins to lose its elasticity, its flexibility. It becomes brittle and it becomes stiff and it won't bend anymore without breaking. When, when it started, you could take that thing and you could bend the tip back to meet the tail and, and make a circle out of it and, it and it didn't even splinter or fracture. But you try to do that two or three days later and you can't because it will break. It becomes hard. It becomes brittle and stiff. That's what the word means. It means to become brittle and stiff, to, to not bend anymore. As a matter of fact, it is, it's the Greek word from which the word petrified comes. When something is petrified, it hardens. It becomes calloused. It, it, it becomes, it, it, it loses all ability to feel and to bend and to be molded. The idea conveyed by the translators with the usage of the word blinded is the idea of a cataract, that, that thick, petrified husk that forms over the eye and renders the eye blind. That's how they came to the, 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 the conclusion of blindness here. And, and they use this word blinded for the translation because it fits well with what's going to follow in the text. But it, it's the idea, the sense that what was once living what was once soft and supple, what once acted and reacted to the presence of God and to the, to the Word of God has now become petrified. It has become calloused. It has become hard and insensitive, and it no longer reacts to the outward influences. It is unfeeling. The idea of the Word is, is much the same as what the Scripture means when it says that a heart has become hard or one has become hard Hearted. A tender heart is soft and supple before God. A tender heart yields to the Word of God, yields to the conviction of God. It responds to the moving of the Spirit of God. But a hard heart loses that sensitivity to the presence of God. It no longer feels the influence of the Holy Ghost. It, it no longer responds to the convicting presence of, of God. It no longer, it no longer yields to the presence 
the, the proclamation of the Word of God, it becomes hard. It becomes calloused. It becomes petrified. That was the condition of the unbelieving Jews. They had, their heart had become hard. They, they had become callous too. It was not that God had predispositioned them not to be saved. It was that they had rejected him so many times that they had become insensitive to his voice. They had become insensitive to the anointed preaching of the word of God. It couldn't reach them anymore. They could sit in the presence of the anointing of God and the Spirit of God, but that it couldn't, it couldn't penetrate anymore through that husk, through that shell, through that hardness. They were blind. Verse 8 says, According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear unto this day. Now, what happens in verses 8, 9, and 10 is that Paul turns the Old Testament for scriptural support for what he's saying. This, this verse and, and the next two verses are quotations from the Old Testament. Now, you've got to remember, Paul is writing this letter to the Jews that are in Rome, and among his audience will be some of those Jews who are hard-hearted, some of those Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ. And they're not going to take kindly to what Paul is saying about them. And so Paul turns to their own scriptures, that thing which they revere above everything else, for his evidence, for his proof, to establish the truthfulness of what he's saying. So verse 8, 9, and 10, they're quotations from the Old Testament. Verse 8 comes from an admixture of Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 10 and Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 4. It's kind of a blending together of those two texts. And you notice that... Paul doesn't say the Lord has said, but he just says as it's written. Kind of a, this, this first one is kind of just a general quote. He pulls context from two different places in the Old Testament and kind of puts it together. And what he says is because of their unbelief, God has given the Jews a spirit of slumber. Now, the Greek word here refers less to a deep sleep, what we consider to be slumber, more to being in a stupor. It is an extension of the hardened imagery we saw in the previous verse, it conveys numbness, apathy, a sense of being stunned. As a matter of fact, the word specifically relates to being struck on the head violently and knocked senseless. You know, sometimes when a person is hit on the head hard enough, they may still be fully conscious, but they're completely unaware of what surrounds them. They have no idea of where they are. They have no idea of what is going on. They are mentally confused. That's what Paul is talking about when he says slumber. Can I tell a little funny personal story? Good, I'm glad you don't mind because I'm going to do it anyway. Last year, we tried really hard to get, we've been trying for a couple of years to get Harrison a good turkey. Uh, his brother killed a 10-inch beard his first time out in the woods, turkey hunting, and, and Harrison's had a struggle. He's killed birds, but he's not killed that big of a bird, and so we worked really hard last year to get him one. When we finally got one in, it was the second or third weekend of season, uh, getting towards late in the season, and this bird come in from a long ways off. I could see him 200 yards away strutting and walking back and forth on a hilltop and answering us, and finally he came down 
come through the valley, come across a creek, come up the hill towards us and stopped about 60 yards from us and started pacing back and forth. And he just would not come into range. He's going around the hill and come back, go around the hill and come back. And finally, uh, I gave Harrison the go-ahead, you know, we're, we're going to lose this bird, shoot him. And so he shot him. It was a 60-yard shot with a three-and-a-half-inch magnum, and it laid the bird over. It knocked him. It 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 done a double flip, and, and he was, we thought, dead. And so we charged down the hill because it's the first thing you do with a dead turkey is get a hold of him because if he does come to, sometimes a turkey will just get knocked out by the bullets and by the BBs, and it won't kill him. And so you want to get a hold of its legs so that if it comes to, it can't fly off. Even if it's wounded, it'll fly off. So we start down there. I got about as close to that bird as this first pew, and it jumped up on its feet. And it's standing there completely conscious, looking kind of like knocked senseless, but completely conscious, looking around and trying to figure out where it is and what's going on. And I am standing there, a human, a, 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 under normal conditions. The first thing that bird would have done was take flight. It would have left. It had been gone. Harrison's running down the hill behind me. I'm froze because I see the bird. Harrison's still running, and the bird's looking, trying to figure out where, what in the world's going on. And we start hollering up the hill, bring the shotgun, because Harrison's left the shotgun up the hill. All this commotion, and that bird's just weaving back and forth like a boxer has been hit one time too many, just trying to figure out what's going on. And we're now Harrison's running back up the hill to get the shotgun, and, and me, I'm retreating to the side so I don't get shot. And then he shoots it a second time and he kills it. But that's exactly what Paul's talking about. That stupor. You've been you've been hit in the head. You just you're a, you're conscious, brother Donnie. There was no evidence whatsoever that that bird had even been shot. It's up on its feet. You can't see its feathers aren't ruffled. There's nothing wrong with it. But it has absolutely no idea what's going on. That's the idea that that Paul's conveying with that word. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. You know, they ought to be aware. They ought to be able to look into the Word of God and see. Jesus Christ said, these, these are the Scriptures that testify of me. You ought to be able to look in this book and find me. But they can't see it. They can't hear it because they're in a stupor. A slumber is what Paul called, what the, what the translation calls it. They're, they're, they're in this place where they become calloused. To the gospel message. They're very much alive. They're very much conscious. They're very much, these are not dumb people. These are thinking people. These are rational people. These are intelligent people, but they're just, they have eyes, but they can't see. You know anybody like that? They have ears. They just can't hear. You know, they, 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 they're very reasoned people. They, they're, very, they're people who can pick up the Word of God, and they seem to be able to see everything but who Jesus really is. It's just they've become so calloused to the gospel message. they become so calloused. they put up so many defenses against truth that truth has a hard time penetrating into their mind and into their conscience. If that bird had ever really shook that off, and we, we felt the whole time he was just on the verge of doing that. If he'd ever realized the danger that was right there, there'd have been no getting him. There'd been no catching him. There'd been no getting him back. But he just never came to that sense of reality. That's the way it is with these people. They, they're very much alive. They're very much conscious, but they just can't grasp the significance 
of what they see in the Word of God. Amen? Now, it's important to note here that the Scripture said God gave them that spirit of slumber. God did not harden their hearts until after they first rejected the gospel. The action of God causing them to become calloused or giving them the spirit of slumber is not an arbitrary action where God said, I've chosen you not to be saved. It is a reaction to their unbelief. They rejected Jesus Christ. They refused the gospel message. And God has basically turned them over to their own delusion. Amen? They, they shut their eyes. They've ignored the truth long enough. They've closed their ears. They've ignored the word of God long enough. And God said, okay, then I'll just take away your ability to see. I'll take away your ability to hear. And it, 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 the hardening was an act of judgment. It was a punitive act by God perpetrated on the unbelieving Jews because of their unbelief. And we won't get there this morning, but what we'll discover as we get further into this chapter is it's actually it's God's way of trying to bring them back to a place of repentance. We'll see it unfold a little later in the chapter that God intends by pouring out the Spirit on the Gentiles and by making those who are not a people a people. His whole purpose is to instill jealousy in the heart of those that were supposed to have been his people. So you don't see and you don't hear, that's okay. I'm going to make it where it's difficult for you to see and hear. And then I'm going to bless this people who, who are seeing and are hearing. And, and, and the belief is, the hope is, that that's going to stir hunger in your heart. And all of a sudden, you're going to hear what you can't hear. You're going to see what you haven't been able to see. Amen. Verse 9 says, And David saith, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. So this is a quotation from Psalm 69, verses 22 and 23. And their table will become a snare, a trap, and a stumbling block. Now, once again, the English translation stumbling block doesn't really convey the weight of the Greek. The, the Greek word conveys the idea of a death trap. And the reason I point that out is because a snare and a trap and a stumbling block, those three are synonymous in the Greek. They mean the same thing. It's just restating of the same thing. Uh, a snare is a hunting device that results in the death of the animal it catches. A trap is a, a hunting device that results in the death of the animal it catches. The stumbling block, we think a stumbling block, we think it's something that you stumble over, but you get over it. But the stumbling block Paul is talking about is not a stumbling block you get over. It'd be the stumbling into a pit or something that, that kills you. It was a death trap. So the first three are synonymous, and they all result in death. Now, the question is, when you look at that context, is what is the table? Now, this is kind of an odd thing. Their table becomes a snare. It becomes a, a trap. It becomes a stumbling block. What is the table? The table of the Jews was their privilege. It was symbolic of their blessing from God. Brother Bernard said of this verse, he said that because of Jewish sinfulness, the special blessings that they had actually became to them a snare. Their blessings actually became a trap to them. It became a stumbling block to them. He quoted the Amplified Bible, which says, Rebounding is a boomerang upon them. Their blessings came back upon them. Because to whom much is given, 
much is required. And they had so much, but they failed to find God in the much they had, so their, their much became to them a stumbling block. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the table, but I need to take just a break right here. I saw Sister Brandy go out in tears, and Sean follow her. Her grandmother's been in the hospital in critical condition for the last couple of days. I don't know, but I'm going to assume that, that they received bad news just in the last few moments and, and that she's probably passed. I'm going to ask you, if you would, just stand with me for a moment. And uh, could we say a prayer for Sister Brandy? And just ask God to, to be peace and comfort in that situation right now. Lord Jesus, I love you. I thank you for your goodness and your mercy. I thank you for the grace of God. Lord, you know exactly what's going on right now. And you know exactly how to move. And I'm asking in the name of Jesus Christ for the grace of God just to reach down right now and touch Sister Brandy. Lord, minister to her and her family and the loss, whatever is going on with the grandmother. I'm asking right now in Jesus' name, Lord, that you would be everything they need you to be. Let there be a peace that passes understanding. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. Brother Sean, is it, is it Brandy's grandmother? Did she pass or just right on the verge? Okay. We're praying for you guys. Amen. It's okay. Some things take precedent over preaching. Amen. Amen. If it was me, I'd want somebody to care. Going back to the table, uh, Kiel and Delitz in their Old Testament commentary explain the imagery of a table as a trap this way. And it's something I had never heard. I thought was very interesting. I want to share with you this morning. They said that in the time of the psalmist, the Bedouins would spread a leather roll on the floor, on the, uh, the floor of the tent as a table. And they would set their feast out on that leather tabletop, as it were. And the imagery of a table as a trap comes from the image of men sitting cross-legged around a leather tabletop that is filled with the feast when suddenly they're surprised by an attack or suddenly they're surprised by an enemy and they jump to their feet to rush to safety and their feet become entangled in the leather of the tabletop and they're caught like an animal in a snare. They're trapped there. And so that's the imagery that Paul is drawing from, the imagery that the psalmist draws from, the imagery of the table, that place of blessing. And for the Jews, the table was the place where they celebrated their holy days. It was the place where they celebrated their divine relationship with God. That was, that was the place where the symbolic of the blessings of God in their life. But Paul said that that blessing has become to them a curse. They have become entangled in their own blessing. They've got wrapped up in the privileges that God gave them and the blessings that have, have, have been the, the, the thing that God gave them has now become come to them a snare and a death trap. And Paul points out with the last phrase of the verse that it is a recompense unto them or a retribution by God because of their unbelief. Because of their unbelief, the very, the very blessings have become to them a trap. The problem with the Jews is that all along, and I've already said this morning, it was an issue of faith. God gave them a law system that operated by faith. And they twisted that into legalism. And because of that, the blessing became to them a death trap. It became to them a snare. Now, I'm going to pause right here for just a moment. And I'm going to say this. 
Don't let your blessings become the things that ultimately destroy you. Don't let the, the, the things that God's, the good things that God's allowed to come into your life become the things that separate you from the house of God, from the presence of God. Don't let the affluence, don't let the, the, the financial blessing, don't let the, 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 the things that you have now, the opportunities and, and availabilities that have been given to you, the things that, that you have discovered along your walk of life where you're, you're better off now than you were many years ago. Don't let those things become the things that, that drive you away from the house of God, that so occupy your mind and your time that you can no longer hear the voice of God. The Jews serve as evidence of the fact that if we're not careful, we'll allow the very blessings and earthly provisions that God has given us to come between us and God and separate us from eternal life. Your blessings can become your death trap. Your blessings can become a snare. The tabletop that's set with plenty can become the thing that entraps you. It can come, become the thing that causes you to allow your blessings to become more important to you than God. To allow you to become calloused to how bad you really need God. When you didn't have any money, you needed God. But somehow we get, we get a little financial well-being. We think we don't need God anymore. Amen? I'm not the only one who's human. And we, we, tend to, we tend to cry out to God in times of crisis. Your prayer life becomes something important to you whenever there's crisis on the horizon, when there's situations beyond your control. But when you're in those times of plenty and those times of ease and when, when there's not a crisis looming, all of a sudden it's not so important to you to push away the, the, you know, the plate and fast or to find the, the time to pray or to make the, the place to meet with God. It becomes less important to you. Don't let your blessing become the thing that separates you from the presence of God. Because human arrogance tends to think it can make it on its own. It doesn't need God. But you need God. You need the presence of God. You need the blessings of God. You get something here that you don't get anywhere else. There shouldn't be anything in your life that's more important to you than getting into the presence of God on a Sunday morning. Amen? Amen. You need God more than you need all the carnal blessings in this world. Verse 10 says, let, you, let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. I'm putting the S on there because I just can't do it without the S. Amen. Always makes better sense to me. That's the rest of the quote from Psalm 69. It explains how the table becomes a snare and then it tells how that happens because their eyes become darkened so they can't see. Israel has mistakenly come to the conclusion that you know they're, they're, the, the material things they have are, are the evidence of God's blessing and God's approval. But what they cannot see is that the, the things that they have have become the very trap that has ensnared them. And so Paul said, as the psalmist said, their eyes are darkened. They're blinded to that. They can't see that their blessing has become their curse. They can't see that the blessing has become a snare that has 
enslaved them. And that's the final image of the verse, the, that of a back that is bent under a heavy load. They've gone from blessed to enslaved. How did they get there? Their hearts became hardened to the presence of God. I read the story once of a young boy who had an extremely rare heart condition. When he was just a young young child, at, at the age of one year old, the doctors discovered that his right ventricle was literally turning to stone. He had a series of diseases, not just a single disease, but a several competing diseases in his body that were causing his heart muscle to calcify, literally turning to bone, if you will. Just like, anybody know what a hill spur is? You better have that condition where you, you, it starts to form overnight and you get out of bed the next morning when you step on it. That calcium, those deposits begin to break up and they, they cut and, 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 and irritate that tendon. You can't hardly, it feels like you're walking on broken glass. Amen. That's what was going on with this little boy's heart. It was starting to calcify. And, and the doctors were baffled. The, the, they finally determined it was the result of several different disease processes that were working in his body at the same time. And, and the damage was irreversible. There was no way to go back and undo it. In four years' time, his heart was entirely encased in calcium. By the time that he was six years old, his heart had become so hard and so inflexible that it could no longer pump blood through his body, and it would eventually take his life. Now, it's not my intention this morning to depress you with a story about youthful innocence swallowed up by a dreadful disease, but I do want to help you see that a hard heart is not something that happens quickly. It's something that develops slowly. It's not something that comes upon you suddenly or overtakes you in a single moment or a single decision or a single choice or a single moment of weakness or distraction. It is a disease process, both physically and spiritually. It starts with small steps. It starts with a single decision. It starts with a single moment. It starts with one choice to ignore the conviction of the Holy Ghost. But... That doesn't leave your heart hard. That doesn't make your heart a heart of stone. One choice leaves you with a small, calloused place in your conscience. One choice leaves you with a, a small place where you're comfortable with rejecting the grace of God and, the, and, the, and the, the appeal and the conviction of the Holy Ghost. But mark the word of the preacher this morning. If you're not careful, one choice leads to another choice, leads to another and another. And it gives you an increasing sense of apathy towards the conviction of God, an increasing sense of numbness towards the calling of the Holy Ghost and the drawing of the Spirit of God and the power and efficacy of the Word of God. And, and it's not that it happens with a single moment or a single decision or a single place in time, but every time that you push away the conviction of the Holy Ghost, every time that you ignore that still, small voice in your heart, your heart becomes more and more calloused 
to the presence of God until finally you become apathetic and insensitive to the convicting spirit of God. And you can stand in the presence of God where conviction is calling sinners to the grace of God and not even feel because the hardness of your heart makes you insensitive to the presence of God. That's how hard hearts are formed. The good news this morning is that the process doesn't have to be final. Unlike the story of the child with the incurable disease, the hardening of your heart spiritually is a process that is completely reversible. All it takes is for you to hear and heed the call of the Spirit of God in your life and change your direction. All it takes is for you to turn back to an altar and hear and respond to the presence of God. God alone has the ability. Doctors can't do it. The best scientists in the world couldn't figure out the little boy's case, but God alone has the ability to take a heart of stone and turn it back into a heart of flesh, to make it soft and supple again, to make it something that responds to the presence of God again. He can do that. So on this Sunday morning, as you stand with me, my message to you today from this ancient text, Paul to the Romans, is don't let your heart become hard. Don't let your spirit become calloused to the moving of the presence of God. Put yourself in a place where you're willing to respond to him. Yield yourself to him. Bend your heart to his will. It may have become stiff. It may have become a little a little brittle and a little hard. But if you'll find your way to an altar and you bend your knees and say, Lord, I need to change my direction. I need to change my way. Wash me. Cleanse me. Cut away the dead. Cut away the calluses. Cut away the husk that's trying to form over my feelings, my sensitivity to your spirit. I want to feel you, God. The scripture said that Esau diligently sought repentance, but he never found it. I want you to know that doesn't have to be the case today. If you seek him, you'll find him. If you turn your heart to him, if you sit in this house and you say, you know, I, I just don't, I don't feel it like I used to feel it. I, I, don't, I don't feel that voice. I don't hear that voice of God like I used to hear it. I, there, there's a sensitivity that's just not the way it used to be. It doesn't have to stay that way. It only takes a single conscious decision. Lord, I want to turn. I want to change my direction. It's not the disease process that makes a hard heart. It happens over a long span of time. But the miraculous process that restores it happens in an instant. It happens in a moment. I feel the unction of the Holy Ghost in this place right now. I'm calling this church to a place of prayer, and I'm calling somebody under the sound of my voice to a place of repentance. I'm asking you to bow your knees, bow your head in the presence of God, and pray a simple prayer. Lord, restore me.
Renew me, God. Revive me, God. Let me be sensitive to you again, God. Let me hear your voice again, God. Let me feel your touch again, God. Don't let me become callous. Don't let me become hard. Don't let me become, Lord, insensitive to your touch. God,